Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose magnificent body of work has made cellists a little more fearful and TV a lot more spooky. One of the writers of Netflix's breakaway horror hit The Perfection, he crafted a tale of psychological and physical horror that left audiences reeling. In the TV landscape, he's lent his storytelling prowess to shows like Supernatural and Midnight Texas, and was the creator of the tantalizing twin thriller series Ringer. Please welcome to the show, writer, producer, and creator extraordinaire, Eric Carmelo. Hi there. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to dig in because obviously, like, one of those things merits a lot of discussion, but you've got a whole body of work within this realm of ooky, spooky uh, c- cinema and television that I just can't wait to chat about. <laughs> um, but before we do that, before we uh, dig in, uh, I'd like to start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to the genre? But why horror? Um, well, I can tell you why I got into horror. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I mean, I had always been a lifelong fan um, ever since I was a little boy on, you know, Friday afternoons after school. My dad would take me to the local video store in suburban Chicago. It was called Video Rama, And they had a horror vault where you walked into and there was like a cheap skeleton in a cage. And I would just pick out my movies based on what was the scariest VHS cover at the time. So from a very young age, my dad kind of inundated me with a lot of horror films. And I, I took an instant liking to it. Um, but ironically, my career trajectory didn't start out in horror. I started out in comedy. But the more comedy I wrote, I realized there was really a fine line between horror and comedy. And the best of both were ironic and subversive and rather perverse. So it felt like it was kind of an evolution to my career. Um, And I think the other reason why I got into horror was I felt like it was a genre that allowed you to you know, make different social commentary without coming off heavy handed. Right. You know, I think all horror is at least good horror is a metaphor for something. So um, it was a fun way to say something about, you know, the topic du jour without feeling, like I said, too heavy handed. And we've discussed this a little bit with different guests in the past, but the idea of of that otherness in horror and yeah. how it can be a mechanism for commentary. Do you think horror is such a good mechanism for commentary solely due to the fact that we can disguise maybe things that the mainstream doesn't want to address head on in the fantastic? Yeah, I do. I mean, and it's also a cathartic process. You know, you can work through your inner demons and in some instances, literal demons, you know, on film. And and I do think by couching things in metaphor, it makes it more palatable to mm-hmm. audiences. Um, and it just makes it a fun thrill ride as well. Uh, I love the story about the video store because I think that for the new generation, you know, the generation that's discovering things on streaming platforms, uh, or that's sort of like the way into, to movies, there is something that's lost. And yes, I I realize there's a little bit like making me sound like a grandpa, like, oh, the good days. But (laughs) you're right. There there was sort of an element of of fantasy when you walked in and you saw the covers of those VHS tapes. Yeah. 
often, you know, with artwork that was far better than the film. Oh, totally. Absolutely. It was often false advertising. And also it was just a tiny peek behind the curtain, you know? Right. I hadn't seen any of the trailers. I don't know if they even, they, well, no, they didn't have anything online back then. So, because there was no online. Right. Um, and the only trailers you would see were, you know, what you saw on television commercials. So um, I would truly base my picks, you know, on the <laughs> cover artwork solely. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I th- am drawn to by that, because I was that kid, too. I remember seeing like The Mutilator or Gates mm-hmm. of Hell and yeah. being like, what is this? This oh, is yeah. like so un- un- uh, unhinged looking and it-, it felt forbidden. Yes. But there was also this sort of awakening, I think, and this happens with a lot of horror fans, where you then get this awareness that there's a kind of movie that's not being shown at the multiplex. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you obsess about it. Yeah. And I don't, I think that that's kind of the deliciousness. And I, like you said, your mind kind of creates something that's probably often better than the product. A hundred percent. But um, yeah, I think it's just lost. I, yeah, like, I miss that lost. era. I do too. I do too. I mean, it truly was like, you know, a kid walking into a candy store. What were the possibilities for that weekend? And, you know, you would pick out three or four movies and you would watch them over the course of the weekend. So, you know, your interest in horror begins at the video store, but you said you started with comedy. Yeah. Uh, so just walk me through that a little bit in terms of obviously you're a movie fan growing up. Yeah. But whether it be horror or comedy, what was there a pivotal moment where you were like, oh, I'm in- interested in more than just sitting and watching these? This is something that I feel like I want to do. Yeah. I mean, my dad was also like an amateur videographer in the 80s. And that's when like very few people had their own personal camcorders. But my dad, he would record like city council uh, meetings for um, a suburb in Chicago. And that was his like weekend gig. And when he wasn't using his video recorder, he would let us make home movies. So I have a sister that I'm very close to. And I would basically enlist her and all her girlfriends and I would write scripts and we would would shoot horror movies over the course of our weekends. I think the very first one we did was called The Dingo Warrior, and the killer killed people with the heels of his dingo boots. I don't know if people know what dingo boots are, but they're just like a really thick kind of uh, Western boot that had a pretty savage heel. (laughs) Well, fashion can kill. (laughs) Yes, it it can. Oh, my God. Have you gone back and watched any of those? I'm afraid to. No, I don't want to see my 14-year-old self. (laughs) Well, it's just always interesting, uh, you know, that era of being able to do the DIY films. I'm just interested in revisiting them sometimes to see if, you know, obviously we grow as artists. Sure. But what what are the seeds? Like, what has remained true the whole way? Right. I mean, again, I think just having a sense of humor, like even back then, I was a big John Waters fan. um, So just watching his uh, movies at a very young age kind of um, stuck with me and kind of informed my sensibility to a certain extent of just embracing the outrageous and the camp, all of which are you know, part of horror. Sure. And it's interesting that you mentioned John Waters, of course, literal hero, uh, personal president. <laughs> but I, I think that what's interesting when John Waters' name is evoked, mm-hmm. uh, he has a great following in the world of horror. Yes. But 
you know, maybe with the exception of Serial Mom, it's not really a genre he dabbles in very frequently. Correct. But there is this notion that camp and horror sort of walk hand in hand yes. because of heightened presentation. Right. And that makes that brings me back to this idea of of what you were saying about the kinship between comedy mm-hmm. and horror. Mm-hmm. Do you and, and you already spoke to this a little bit, but do you believe that they are kind of two sides of the same coin in some ways? Yeah, I do. I mean, I feel like the two are inextricably linked. I think with any good horror film, you need some comedy to buffer that tension and the suspense and the horrific elements. So, um, yeah, I, I think the two work best when they're threaded together, you know, and even the process of, you know, set up, set up, punchline, like it's kind of the same with writing a suspense scene, you know, but you're just using different building blocks, but it's kind of the same theory behind it, like what makes it work. Right. And and really, it's all about the beats of a scene. Yes. You skew a beat one way, it can be funny, and Correct. another, it could be terrifying. Yes. Uh, so you're making these home films, and obviously you have an interest in filmmaking, Uh did you then go to school for that? I didn't. I, I went to Northwestern and I thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, I was obsessed with just plastic surgery in general because I had always been very artistic and I loved the idea of literally sculpting flesh. So, I mean, I guess there is some kind of like horrific underpinning to that, like just becoming, you know, I, I don't want to say like I thought of myself as like a Dr. Frankenstein, but there was something beautiful and macabre about plastic surgery that always spoke to me. And right. and I thought maybe that's what I wanted to do. And um, I was just about to uh, go to med school and I jumped ship at the last minute and moved out to Los Angeles and decided I wanted to pursue a career in filmmaking. So um I, I knew it was right for me, but it almost, you know, gave my parents grandma, you know, seizures when I told them that I was not going to go to med school. Oh, I can imagine because <laughs> that's a huge shift. Yes. And so you just moved out here with with a, with a dream. Yeah, I did. I mean, I worked at Olive Garden in suburban Chicago for six months, saved up, I think, 1300 bucks, moved out to L.A. without a car. Um, and I just said I was going to figure it out. And so... Was was the plan then to always be behind the camera? Did you explore? I think acting? so. No, I didn't really. Um, I knew that I was a storyteller and, you know, that was my um, passion. But I, I also didn't know if I wanted to direct. And I just started getting gigs as a PA, like on various sets. Um, I think the first like big movie I worked on was it was called Beverly Hills Ninja, which, according <laughs> to your IMDb, you were also in briefly. Well, the producer was kind enough to put me in the credits so I could get residuals because he knew that I was struggling. So it was a, oh god, I hope I don't get Sony in trouble. But um, <laughs> I was I was credited as uh, guy at plant, and I honestly I get residuals to this day for that non-existent role <laughs> <laughs> well uh sony lo- lawyers please turn off the show now um but uh no i love that uh that storytelling was always kind of the path so i'm interested then uh you know when did you know that you were gonna really make a go of it like um i think it was about probably a year into living in la i had an idea for a movie um I hadn't studied screenwriting in school, so I just started buying all these books. I bought Sid Field's screenplay and as many kind of uh, books on screenwriting and television writing as I, I 
could buy. Um, and I had a, a friend from Northwestern at the time who had just moved out, and I was pitching her my idea, and she's like, you should meet Nicole Snyder. It sounds like it would be up her alley. And it turns out Nicole and I went to the same college, but we weren't friends in college. Right. Um, and we met one day over lunch. This was like the mid-'90s, so I was wearing a Chasing Amy hat. She loved Kevin Smith, and we you know, bonded over our mutual love of Courtney Love, of all people. And we decided that was a sign that we should be writing partners. And lo and behold, 23 years later, we're still working together. So, um, First off, I love the sheer 90s magnitude <laughs> of, of that. Uh, just Kevin Smith chasing Amy, Courtney Love. Yeah. What better trio to right, bring people I mean. together? <laughs> it's interesting it because Chasing Amy is a movie uh, that I feel like is of interest to Dead for Filth listeners mm-hmm. because it is a queer narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a queer nar- narrative that I feel exists only in a specific time. Right. It's a tricky movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say at the time I loved it. I mean, it spoke to me and as did most of his movies. I mean, you know, it was like the dawn of like indie filmmaking and I thought it was just so cool. Well, from from a writer and filmmaker's perspective, I think that that's interesting, too, is taking into uh, into account the lens of the era of which something is made right. that I think sometimes with the the internet and just kind of the constant discussion that happens about everything mm-hmm. we forget that there's a different scope by which things were looked at or how we like took in cinema mm-hmm. like I think chasing amy is is an example of something that it was just exciting and new yeah and it, maybe you know the narrative in the movie couldn't be made now or shouldn't be made now but that doesn't mean it's not an important movie right and uh so i don't know i just think that constant um change uh in discussion is very important to to take into account for us as storytellers as well i agree uh so you connect over that that 90s holy trinity <laughs> you've been working together for 23 years yeah so let's dig a little bit into some of the things that you have created sure um ringer especially i think is interesting because it was really the the next big show that sir michelle geller did right after buffy yeah but there's also something to be said about ringer and a connection to the perfection in the way that they're both stories about identity correct so is 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 identity like something that you really are drawn to when you're creating characters in terms of like crises of yeah and just the duality of it you know the masks that we wear in the public arena versus who we are in private and that's kind of a a very common theme that nicole and i have written about over the years and it's certainly one that you know is intrinsic i think to horror as well you know half the killers are masked so you know it's a literal mask versus you know a figurative one but you know just the idea of Identity and duplicity has always spoken to me. Um, one of my favorite films is Dead Ringers. So um, I, I loved that film. I just love anything about twins and identity and duplicity is 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 my, kind of my sweet spot. Well, and then, too, I see this especially evoking Dead Ringers, Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had mentioned before we went on the air that what's interesting about The Perfection is it's a difficult movie to discuss without mm-hmm. giving anything away. Yeah. But I do think w- 
spoiler free, it is it is safe to say that body horror mm-hmm. is a huge element of this. Yes. So is is Cronenberg like very foundational to you? Because he is. Yeah, I think I saw going back to Videorama in the video store. I remember I was always drawn to the cover of uh, Dream of a Rabbit with Marilyn Chambers. Yes, and yeah. she was like sitting in a freezer, and she had like. At the time, I I don't know if I even realized it was frostbite, but she was like coated in something and she looked crunchy. But I just remember like this image was like emblazoned in my mind as a kid. But I think all of his movies kind of like deal with body horror. And I've always just been fascinated with that. Um, Just the, the metamorphosis of people, whether it's literal or figurative. Well, you know, we're talking about identity and then like with with. The perfection taken into account, we could also discuss what that means uh, with a queer lens and the idea of queer identity. Right. But do you think from a queer storytelling standpoint, there is a draw to body horror because of, of queer identity? Because... Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I guess I never thought about it through that lens. But my gut reaction would be yes absolutely yeah i mean how can i elaborate on that i mean i i definitely feel that there is a is a correlation because i think there's there's probably something to be said about how well maybe maybe the body horror and the identity are are linked in the idea right. that we're often being told who we are mm-hmm. by external forces and how we should manifest and and, uh, you know, handle ourselves. Right. And I don't know. I'm just interested in it. I'm kind of like exploring this as we're talking. Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm with you in the way that like maybe this is a bigger idea. Right. But I'm just interested in the idea that, you know, especially with the the connection to body horror and, and knowing there's a queer narrative in the perfection. Mm-hmm. And I suppose because queer is an umbrella term that can mean many things. Sure. Ringer probably has, has queer. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just interested in that that sort of uh, correlation. Yeah. I mean, now that I think about just like, you know, body horror and the queer identity, I mean, just the things that we as gay men subject ourselves to in order to achieve that, you know, evolving standard of beauty is body horror, you know. So, I mean, just from the most literal of, you know, senses, it's I I, I can see it in, in those terms and, you know, through that scope, maybe. It's interesting. Who would have thought that being gay is is Cronenbergian? I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It's it's it is uh, a gauntlet of what we put ourselves through to achieve a, a perfect body standard. Right. Obviously, there's sexual components involved. Yes. But then the idea that we do it all, both for ourselves, but for this idea of of community acceptance. Right. Yes. Wow. Indeed. Yeah. It's deep, man. It just, it just got, got heavy up in here. Uh, so, let you know, we, we keep talking a little bit about the themes of the perfection. Yeah. Uh, so, why don't we just dig into that? Tell me a little bit about the genesis of that project. Because, you know, we're throwing out the idea that there's a queer narrative. It's a story within a story within a story. Sure. There's body horror. Yeah. Uh, it's all about identity. Right. It's a multi-layered onion that yes. is very tricky to discuss, but 
that starts with a seed somewhere. So it certainly does. Where's that begin? I mean, it honestly all started with the bus sequence. So Nicole and I met Richard Shepard years ago because he directed the pilot of Ringer for us. Okay. And we've stayed very close since then. And we've worked on a bunch of other pilots together. And for years, we had been looking to do something on the feature side. And Richard came to us, I want to say it was probably the summer of 2017, Um, And he's like, I have this idea for a movie, but it's like literally a sequence. And he kind of pitched out this bus sequence where, and honestly, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I can't remember if he said it was his greatest fear or if it actually happened to him in Mexico, like some version of it, not as heightened as obviously what happened in the movie. But you're on a bus in a foreign country. You feel very, very ill. You don't speak the language. You can't communicate. You're trying to get to a hospital, but nobody understands you and how terrifying that is, you know? And it, at the time, it kind of like fed into like the rampant xenophobia that was, you know, being spread, you know, by number 45. So um, it, it felt timely in this like oddly subversive way and just kind of like this fun kind of like road trip movie. And that was honestly the beginning of it so we just talked about getting sick on a bus and initially when we had written the perfection it was all set in mexico it wasn't china um and i remember we had broken the bus sequence first and we're like okay this is a great run it's like 20 minutes of a movie but what's the movie and we just started building from there but that was truly the base of the film and richard knew like with the uh, with uh directing Ringer for us, like, we love neo-noirs and we love lots of twists and turns and movies within movies and you have no idea who you can trust, who's the femme fatale, who's the mark, you know. So he knew that that was kind of our wheelhouse and we started to kind of, like, build this, like, psychological noir around this really horrifying bus sequence. And that truly was the beginning of it. I like, too, that you, uh, uh, during that, description even said that there was a period where there was something comedic about the bus sequence. Oh, yeah. Which takes you back to your roots of intertwining those things. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like that sequence when we had sent out the script, first of all, there was a lot more vomit and a lot more shit than actually made, made it to screen. But the the biggest feedback we got were was people saying i didn't know if i was supposed to laugh or cringe and i was doing both and that you know speaking to that like it, it's it's so uncomfortable and so outrageous that you have to laugh because it's so horrific um <clears throat> and then from there the movie grows yes. and it becomes uh this this like we said multi-layered beast yeah uh I am really interested in your evoking of the idea of noir Mm -hmm. because um, I I didn't directly fully realize the the complete connection to Ringer that The Perfection had. I was just looking at it in scope of here's something about identity and here's something about identity and how interesting this is a theme you keep returning to. But um, also the fact that noir is something you return to. Mm -hmm. What is it about noir that you you really like – um, I, I just like the style of it. I like the style of storytelling where you think you have it figured out and the person that you think you're supposed to trust, like I said, is actually the person who's least trustworthy. Um, we love the twists, turns, and I just like the the literal filmic style of it, you know? Right. Like, I, I think it's beautiful. You know, I love 
De Palma films and, you know, early Coen brothers and even the noirs from the 40s and 50s, like the whites are white and the blacks are black and there's heavy shadow. And, you know, with modern noir, you have those pops of red. So just the literal color palette of it is very appealing and stark and severe and beautiful. And and there's just something about that patina that I've always been drawn to. Uh, I'm very interested by the the mention of Brian De Palma's mm-hmm. name because I th- I can see in in ways this film influenced by De Palma. Are you a big De Palma fan? Yes, and Richard is an extraordinary De Palma fan. I mean, if you couldn't tell by the split diopter shots, <laughs> um, but yeah, even when we were doing Ringer, like we we talked a ton about De Palma, you know. And there's this one sequence in the pilot of Ringer where Sarah Michelle is assuming her sister's identity, and she's in this hall of mirrors and. It looks like it could have literally been out of Dress to Kill. It was just this beautiful sequence. So um, <clears throat> it's interesting because uh, this is the second week in a row that De Palma has has come up on mm-hmm. the show. And so I'm going to ask you, as someone who uh, who likes his work, uh, especially because we're talking a, a little bit about identity and how crucial it is to his work as mm-hmm. well as your own. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a queerness to Brian De Palma's cinema. Yeah. And it's fascinating Mm -hmm. because really he's not someone that we think of as a queer filmmaker. Correct. I don't know. Is is it because he digs into identity or is it the voyeurism of it all? I I think it's the voyeurism. I think it's the identity. And, you know, there are often lesbians in his films, too. (laughs) So, I mean, there are literal queer characters as well. But, you know, I, I think... All of that kind of feeds into, you know, what we perceive as as queer horror. Right. And uh, yeah, and it's just a shift of gaze, I guess. Yes. Yes. Um, so, you know, you were talking about the, the reactions the audience has mm-hmm. to per- the perfection uh-huh. just from the scene. Yes. But this is a very visceral movie. Oh, yeah. And some of the, the posts, you know, once it, it plays festivals and then it's yeah. on Netflix and seeing kind of the the online reaction and yeah. the, the audience reaction, people have like reacted very strongly to this. Oh, movie. yes. So what's the experience been like in the wake of this? I mean, it's it's cool. I mean, like the the last thing you want as a filmmaker is for people to have no reaction to right. what they're watching, for them to be in Bivalent, you know, and this elicited very, very strong reactions, both good and bad. And it's been very polarizing. But people have a severe reaction to this film. And I think that's what you want. You know, you are pushing buttons and you want to be provocative and, you know, you want to create a dialogue. You want people to debate the film after they see it. And it's like one of those movies you should see with people so you can debate it afterwards. Um, uh, it's got to be delicious too to know that you've affected people in that way. Yeah, it is. I remember when we first had screened it. So at the time, this was before uh, Netflix was even on board. Miramax was making the film, and then you do like the test screenings. And I don't know if you've ever sat through one, but they're awful. I mean, yeah. I think our first test screening was either in Glendale or it was, no, it was the Pasadena ArcLight. You know, total cross section of people, and it was the very first one. And I remember um, the end credits are rolling and like some girl literally screamed out, what the fuck did I just watch? So I knew it was going to elicit strong reactions just based on that test screening. Um, So we were kind of primed for it. But, you know, it's always fun just to see people react to what you create. Um, 
is there a litmus for the strongest reaction? Do you have you heard of anything over the top? Um, I mean, it's people kind of project, you know, when they watch the film and they see what they want to see. I've, you know, I I know Richard, Nicole, and I had a really fun time just scrolling through the comments on Twitter and seeing what people read into the film. Um, I'm trying to think the craziest thing that I read. Um, I mean, it. gosh, I don't think anything is coming to mind, but it, it was just a crazy, crazy cross-section of reactions. It really was. It was, it was pretty wild. And the fan art, too. Like, that, I wasn't prepared for it, but, um, like, some of the fan art was stunning, and I had... This one guy, he's making me a poster based on something that he drew from the film. And it was it was pretty impressive just to see people wanting to create after seeing this film. So, you know, it was it was really neat. Well, and there's got to be something very gratifying to know that something you created has struck a chord in that way. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit because some of the uh, shows that I, I referenced at the top, uh, Midnight Texas, Supernatural, mm-hmm. Supernatural specifically has kind of a voracious fan base. Yes. But it's kind of a very different sandbox yes. than, the, than the things that we're talking about. Yes. Um, although, you know, Ringer and and the perfection exist in a specific genre space, mm-hmm. uh, and supernatural genre they're very different. Yes. So when you're when you're preparing to write stories for something like supernatural, is your approach different than? It is a little bit different. I mean, I felt like that was like a very like testosterone heavy show. It was about two straight brothers who were, you know, hunting demons after their mother was killed by one when they were younger. So um, the creator, Eric Kripke, who's a wonderful man and gave Nicole and I like our big break, um, established a very specific tone for that show. So we just had to emulate his tone and it was fun to do it. I mean, to me, that was more kind of aligned with like the Buffy tone, you know, where it was, you would have the monster of the week and, you know, you would have some boy melodrama that kind of was interwoven, you know, with their case of the week. But, um, you know, those two boys drove that show and, and, you know, 15 years later, it's still on the air. So 15 a, years. Yeah. Isn't it remarkable? It is. It's it's impressive. And it's funny because there's a huge queer following for the show. I mean, Jared and Jensen are gorgeous. So, I mean, I, I understand like why gay guys watch the show, but a lot of people ship the relationships on the show. And um, I think that's where I first learned about shipping. I didn't even know that it existed. And um the the biggest relationship that was shipped on the show was between an angel who was male, at least he was in a male vessel, and Dean, who was played by Jensen Ackles. And um, it was called Castiel, or excuse me, no, Destiel, because it was for Dean and Castiel. Uh, and you might be the perfect person to discuss this this world of shipping. Like, because yeah. Supernatural has been touched upon in previous episodes, but we've never quite dug into it because right. I was sort of waiting for someone who worked on the show to, to speak to yeah. the queer fan base that you're alluding to. Uh, I host uh, panels at Comic-Con and uh-huh. frequently over the years when we discuss queer horror, there's invariably like a question uh-huh. about that kind of whole world. Right. Um, and 
in a way they're supernatural and then there's the supernatural fan base right. and although they of course are conjoined yes they both seem to be like large behemoths unto themselves yes it's got to be fascinating to sit and watch as someone who's creatively involved in the show and to see this world where they're taking the characters in your sandbox and being like but no right yeah yeah i mean it's fascinating and again that's what i love about art you know people see what they want to see and people take from it what they want to take right people will take elements of it and create their own mythos and fan fiction and that's awesome you know what's interesting too that i I learned a lot about shipping uh especially the queer shipping that is done is Mm -hmm. that it's actually not by and large gay fans correct it's like Straight girls. Straight girls. (laughs) Yes, it is. Has there ever been discussion about that? Like, why why do... I honestly don't know, but I I find it absolutely fascinating as well you know and it's it's soccer moms and and straight teenage girls like truly they were the ones who were shipping Destiel harder than anyone so um something speaks to them about you know the union of these two characters relationship i love that Mm -hmm. i love that there's kind of like a a deep fascination for for queerness even necessarily when there is none presented Correct. But it's being asked for by people who aren't necessarily queer. Totally. Uh, and I mean, I, I know that I and some of the other queer white writers on the show, we would try to throw them, you know, a little nugget every now and then where, you know, again, it wasn't anything overt, but, you right. know, it, it was like the acknowledgement of we see you, we hear you and have fun with this line. You know, I mean, it was that simple, but people would then read into that and they would feel like they were, you know, validated, like, oh my God, it's true. It's true. So, um, (laughs) but yeah, the whole thing is absolutely fascinating to me. No, it's, it's just so amazing to see uh, that kind of fan pivot and, and, and claiming. Yeah. Uh, Do you experience that with Midnight Texas as well? Or we did. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I think not to the same extent as Supernatural because it was on two seasons versus 15. But, you know, there was a rabid, rabid fan base for that show. And they specifically loved the out gay characters on the show. And there was an angel named Joe that was played by Jason Lewis. And um, uh, there was a, a gay demon and they were lovers and they had been lovers for millennia. Um, and we had done something very controversial, um, in the second season where there was a love triangle where someone came in between the angel and the demon who were together for millennia and people just had a very, very strong reaction to that because they're like, how could somebody come between them when they had been together for 3000 years? And it is interesting because it's a Charlene Harris. Yes. Yes. Uh, Her book series. Yeah. So Charlene Harris, uh, has always been more about directly engaging with queer content than say supernatural necessarily intended to. Right. Uh, And I just, I am interested to see sort of like how that then manifests with the fans who are fascinated in, in this. Yeah. Um, I like that they just took took umbrage. Don't, yes, they don't did. become don't come between our angel and demon. I mean, truly, I'm surprised that I didn't get death threats, but I <laughs> I got everything but. Uh, so, you know, these are all very different kinds of of stories, and uh, 
in some ways, I guess they're all in different uh, ways also all about identity. Yeah. Because, you know, Sam and Dean are finding themselves in the wake of the loss of their parents in this yes. very fantastic world. You're yes. talking about angels and demons in this town in Texas. Yeah. Twin twin drama on Ringer and all of the identity crises that are happen in uh, The Perfection. Yeah. Uh, but then, so, you know, you're getting to play in different sandboxes, some that you created, some that, that belong to other people that you bring yourself to. Mm-hmm. What what draws you to a project? Um, I think the themes, mm-hmm. um, sometimes the actors. Um, I'm working with Sarah Michelle Gellar again on a new show, and we've stayed very close since Ringer, and we've been looking to do something together again, and we will be doing a new show um, that's also about identity, but it has a social media slant, and it's what you purport to be on social media versus what you are behind closed doors. So again, that theme is very, very present in most of the work I do. Um, But at the end of the day, I think the material has to speak to me more than anything. You know, it's not necessarily the genre, but it's what it's trying to say, and will I have fun writing it, and you know, can I, you know, speak to speak to something, you know, comment on something that's happening in society. Now, you mentioned uh, this new project with Sarah Michelle Gellar uh, is all about social media. Yes. Now, we just talked about several projects of yours that obviously had a lot of feedback from social media. Was this inspired in any way by your interactions through those? Um, I just think it saturates our life. So it was certainly ripe for the skewering. So mm-hmm. um, it was just living in a world where it's so rampant and people's faces are literally buried in screens all day. And um, I just I felt and Sarah felt that it was time to say something about that. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it somewhere in between? Um, is it going to be the downfall of society? Is it going to save society? You know, and I think depending on who you are, you probably have different vantage points as to how you see it. <clears throat> it is truly the blessing and the curse, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's uh, the blessing is that everybody has a voice and the yeah. curse is everybody has a voice. That's right. Uh, do you find um, as a creator, is is it a crucial landscape that you have to engage with? Yeah. I mean, I think I first realized that when... Um, I was on Supernatural, like just seeing the the rampant Twitter following and um, the Facebook pages and kind of part of the job was um, engaging the fan base and live tweeting on episodes like nowadays, like you're mandated sometimes by the studio or network to live tweet. And sometimes the actors are there and it's just a way to engage and, you know, you know increase your presence on on social media make the thumbprint bigger and bigger and bigger so um yeah i mean on midnight texas we would live tweet every single week and we did that on ringer and um yeah it's just part of the job now but i like that in a way that takes us back all the way to the beginning of the conversation finding that thing that we engage with in life Mm mm-hmm and seeing the horror in it too. Correct. And yes. that's that's interesting. Yeah. Like so you're literally like this thing that you said the use of the word mandate. That's a powerful word. Sure. Uh, that you now not only have to exist on social media, but you have to exist on social Correct. media. And yes. what does that mean and how do we present? Yeah. And so when you take it back to what you said originally engaged 
engages you with this genre, the idea that you can utilize horror to explore and make a comment on the things in our lives that we're not willing to say. Correct. What bigger beast than Twitter? I mean, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I never saw Unfriended, so I can't speak to, you know, horror films that tackle that. But It is an interesting <clears throat> thing that there's <clears throat> a, now a subgenre of social media horror. Yes. Um, I guess maybe it's because we all know that it is a little scary. Yeah. It really is. And just the idea of putting something out there that is out there forever. You know, thank God when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, I didn't have Twitter or Facebook or God knows we all say stupid things when you're young and immature and naive and you just are stupid and you're learning what's acceptable and what's not. So the fact that nowadays kids don't have the freedom to make those mistakes because everything is recorded and it can prevent you from getting a job or getting into a school or you know, it's it's scary. Yeah, there's no margin of error anymore. There isn't. So what I'm hearing is you're never going to upload the the dingo horror movie. Correct. To, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we're sorry, YouTube. You're going to have to miss out on that one. Uh, so um, you mentioned the Sarah Michelle Geller project. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you're working on you can share with us? What's next? Sure. Uh, Nicole Snyder, my writing partner, and I just co-wrote another horror movie with Richard Shepard, who we co-wrote The Perfection with, and he also directed it. So it's our follow-up to The Perfection, and it's by no means a sequel. It's not the same world, but right. I think it has a lot of the same DNA. Um, and I guess all I can tell you, I can tell you the title it's called Her Name is Retribution. <laughs> and it's, um, you think it's one movie until it's not. Um, and it's, let's just say it's a Parisian ghost story. Like, that that's as much as I can give you without giving away any spoilers. Uh, and yet, a Parisian ghost story is quite quite a lot. I yeah, mean, I feel, sure. I'm, I think that that's really exciting. And I like uh, the idea that again, it's that bait and switch that yes. you seem to really be drawn to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, the backbone of good storytelling is taking us on a journey. Yeah. Uh, especially one that then does a, a hard pivot somewhere. Right. <laughs> and there's a lot of hard pivots in this one too. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of movies uh, and, and storytelling, uh, one of the things I like to ask guests, because this is a show in service of film mm-hmm. and uh, how movies shape us and mold us and help our identities mm-hmm. in different ways. What have you watched recently that inspires you or that you're liking? What's uh, what? Oh, gosh. Um I really dig Ari Aster. I think I'm saying his name right. Is it Ari or Ari? Ari. Ari. I think Ari Aster. I loved Hereditary. Um, When I saw that film, I was pretty gobsmacked and speechless. Like I walked out feeling like I was like drop kicked by somebody and I didn't really know how to process what I just witnessed. Um, I I thought it was terrifying. Um, I was very, very excited to see Midsummer, and I did see Midsummer, and I didn't have as visceral a reaction to that as I did his first film, but I think he's fiercely talented, and just his tableaus are incredibly haunting and beautiful. Um, Just as a filmmaker and an artist watching each shot, it's like its own stunning composition so just the pure artistry of his filmmaking really speaks to me it's interesting too when you take hereditary and midsummer into account that although very different movies i think hereditary is very visually dark and midsummer is very bright right uh they both seemingly 
are about the same thing presented in different ways because they're all about grief management. Right. And, uh, you know, we were unpacking some really heavy stuff earlier, but there Mm -hmm. is something interesting that Ari Aster's films are connecting now, Mm -hmm. especially like in the wake of of, of 45. Right. uh, and, And how horror seemingly reflects trauma right more than ever your movie reflects trauma in in an interesting way and i i'm interested and i would be interested to get your take on this since uh you know i think that uh the perfection does touch upon trauma is that something that now horror movies are addressing because of the state of the world i think so um you know i love the idea I, i feel like this is relatively new in horror movies but writing and and producing these woke horror films right you know holding a mirror up to society and your horror is literally reflecting the society that you're living in sometimes in a literal sense sometimes it's more metaphorical but yes it is holding up a mirror to society and it's saying something about it and um there is a knee-jerk reaction to what's going on and artists are creating things based on just the world in which we're living in and it's a scary place sadly yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so beyond Ari Aster, anything else that's really? Um, God, what did I see lately that I? Re- I mean, I, I can tell you like the classics that have always inspired me. And please, yeah. You know, Exorcist is like the gold standard for me. I was raised as an Italian Catholic boy and went through the parochial school system my entire life. So, I literally believed in the devil growing up, and my dad let me see this film at a very, very young age, and it brutalized me. I mean, it 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 left such an indelible mark in my mind, and just, um, I don't think any movie had that as strong of effect on, on me as any other film. Um, Rosemary's Baby, I think, is genius. I love most of Polanski's stuff. Um, I love Don't Look Now. Um... I love uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre because it was played so real and there was so little blood. But in my mind, it's one of the goriest movies ever. Um, but it, it played like a snuff film to me almost. When I was watching it as a kid, I literally believed this was happening because I remember the Chiron initially said based on a true story. And right. I think it was based on Ed Gein or Ed Gein, however you say his name. Yeah, very liberally, of right. course. Yeah. Very liberally. No, but it's yeah. it's true. And it takes us back to that video store, the yeah. idea of selling the horror before we even start yeah. the film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now, now in the world, when a horror movie says it's based on a true story, I think we're very aware that yes. that can be a very... It's a neb- marketing yeah, ploy. Yeah. A marketing <laughs> ploy. It's a very nebulous yes. definition. Yeah. But, yeah, the the power of suggestion in Texas Chainsaw is... Yeah. is unparalleled yes and terrorized a generation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i like that uh the idea of of the just the, the visceral horror because all of these movies that you're listing whether it be exorcist rosemary's baby don't look now uh in texas chainsaw they all kind of return us to themes we've been discussing this whole episode mm-hmm. Rosemary's Baby, Don't Look Now, even The Exorcist, there's there's the idea of, of identity and a crisis of identity, right. whether it be crisis of faith or no longer having control of who you are Correct. or how the world perceives who you yes. are. Yeah. Uh, don't Look Now. And lots of vomit. <laughs> lots of vomit. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be a thing with you. <laughs> well, John Waters once said, like, the mark of any good movie is there has to be at least one 
vomit sequence. So I've tried to incorporate that in in most of my stuff. So, um, <laughs> do you have a favorite Waters movie? Uh, polyester to me, it was the most subversive because it was suburbia. It was right. where I lived, you know, it was in his movie. It was, you know, suburban Baltimore, but you know, suburban Chicago was the same in the late seventies, early eighties. I have a great affinity for polyester. And it's interesting though, because usually when people are asked their favorite waters movie, that's not the one that's listed, no. but there is something really, um, powerful about it. Mm-hmm. I like the idea too. That uh, you're right, it tackles suburbia, but then you've got someone like Tab Hunter, like the mm-hmm. quintessential American right. man yeah. in this world of of Waters High Camp. <laughs> uh, and I love, you know, I'm, I'm loving the cyclical nature of all of this discussion, the idea that things keep coming back. Uh, because that in its way is, is all of Waters' movies deal with camp. Mm-hmm. But there's the suburban camp of yeah. polyester. And I don't necessarily think that camp and comedy are the same. Mm-hmm. But do you do you find that camp is very influential to the work that you do? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I like heightened arenas, you mm-hmm. know, and trying to ground them in real life situations. Um, I, I just think... Outrageous things can be very, very funny, but they have to be buffered with real things in order for an audience to digest it, I think. Well, then, so earlier we were talking about the kinship between comedy and Mm -hmm. horror. Mm -hmm. Would you go so far as to say that it's that camp is even closer to horror than comedy is? Yeah, I would. I mean, I remember when we were writing The Perfection we were doing like the final read through, like before we sent it out to studios and we were, Richard was um, renting a house in Malibu. So we were sitting in this beautiful beach house, drinking rosé and we're reading through the script and about five or six times, like Richard would stop us and say, you know, that's one degree too far. Like we, we had crossed the line into full on camp. And I think there were one or two lines of dialogue that he let us keep in. Um, but like I remember at the time, the rest were like, OK, you're right. We 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 crossed the line. We weren't right. towing the line. We crossed it. So but is there a version of the movie that does go into that place that you would have liked to have seen? No, I think I think the temperature that Richard had modulated was the perfect temperature for this movie, because right. at its core, it is, as you know, a social commentary and a scathing indictment of a certain movement that I don't want to give away if you haven't seen the film, but I felt like if it, if you played into the camp, people wouldn't take it seriously. And it is a serious movie. Do you think that people don't take camp seriously also because that for a a larger swath of, of the public, there's a misunderstanding or misconnect of what camp is? Yeah, I do. I do think so. Um, But I think all good comedy has elements of camp to it. You know, I think it's inextricably linked to it, you know, if it's good. Right. I've always just been fascinated by that because obviously I think camp sometimes works because people don't get it. Not everyone right. gets it. There's, so right. there's like an inclusiveness right. to the understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and I think of John Waters specifically as a great example of someone who, when I would try and show people his movies, yeah. you know, when people would be like, Ugh, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, then my friends would be like, oh, well, and I was like, no, I'm kind of glad because if everyone liked it, right, it wouldn't be the John Waters that 
we love. Right. I agree. And I don't know. I think that that's kind of true of horror. I think that's true of cult cinema because there's sort of like a no in in the no kind of of, a vibe that happens. Correct. Um, It's just kind of like being part of the club. Like to the outside, everyone thinks it's sick, but agreed. We're actually up to something. Agreed. I remember when I saw like the first movie that I saw like with an audience that I felt like was modern day camp, but not everybody realized it was modern day camp was Wild Things. I remember walking into the theater and like I was just like once she said he raped me on the floor of his shitty apartment, like I was cackling and like I don't think you know, half the audience got that this was all intentional, you know, right. and and I remember when we had written The Perfection, we talked about wild things many, many times just because there were so many great twists and turns in that film. And it was incredibly campy, but um, it was kind of grounded in this modern day noir. And um, yeah, those were all kind of like ingredients that we handpicked and try to make into a stew when we were writing The Perfection. Well, a body horror identity thriller campy <laughs> stew. <laughs> That's about right. The ultimate gumbo, really. Right, yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of different things over the course of, of the show, and um, we talked about, you know, what's next. Normally I would ask what's next, but we've talked a little bit about that. But before we go, I guess then my question is... When you have such a gumbo of themes that you like to return to, what are you looking towards next in terms of, of grand ideas? What do you want to tackle? Um, God, I mean, I, I think like after writing The Perfection and then right after Her Name is Retribution, Nicole and I were looking for a little bit of a palate cleanser. I mean, like we were really doing a deep dive into some dark shit and like we just wanted to laugh. So this this new show with Sarah is more user friendly and funny, but still scathing. And it's just again, when you when you are writing something that's incredibly dark, it's hard not to go there when you're writing it because you have to immerse yourself in it so to be surrounded by that day in and day out and it literally impacts your dreams as well it's it's kind of a gloomy place to be so i want to be somewhere a little more sunny for a while so well i uh i hope you get there me too uh where can people find you um like online or you yeah, mean like, in real life? <laughs> well, please, please, <laughs> listeners, uh, do, do not stalk Eric. Down. No. What? Yeah. In social media space. I mean, I I'm on Facebook. I have a Twitter account. Um, I have an Instagram account. Um, I. You could find me on IMDb if you want to see my resume. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe that's that's the place to start. Uh, please, listeners, go to Eric's IMDb and. Check out all the films and shows that he has worked tirelessly to bring to you because that's what we're, we're here for, to introduce you and to celebrate. <laughs> uh, but yes, Eric, thank you so much for taking some time out of thank your you schedule Thank you for having today. me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Michael Vratti. This has been Dead for Filth. You're as always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.